0: You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. How many of you, when you were a child now, how many of you promised that you were not going to raise your kids the way your parents raised you? Now, leave your hand up if you're succeeding. There are not very many hands left up in the room. I'll never forget when I was, I don't know how old I was, eight, nine, 10, this happened more than once, but I remember this particular moment, my dad was watching, I think it was football on TV, I just remember he was watching TV, and he made me take the trash out, which was normal, one of my normal responsibilities or chores around the house, but I remember I was mad because he was watching TV, he made me stop what I was doing to take the trash out. (coughs) Excuse me. And I remember (coughs) when I took the trash out, I remember thinking to myself all the way out to the trash can, when I grow up, I'm not going to do this to my kids. And what I meant was, I'm not going to watch TV while they do the work around the house. Now, there's a million things broken with that idea. I was a child, right? When I was a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, Paul says. And when I became a man, I continued to bring my childish ways with me. So, (laughs) it's not exactly what Paul says, but... So what happened was, like yesterday, I'm doing the dishes, which is one of my responsibilities around the house. And I'm getting into the utensils, and I'm packing all these utensils. And I, just the way my brain is wired, I want to stand in the big picture. D- detail stuff just drives me bonkers. For those of you who've been here for a while, you understand, right? And so uh, I literally look at my wife, and I go, this makes my brain hurt. I just want to be clear. I want you to know how much I love you, because this makes my brain hurt. Like doing all this detail, knife, knife, fork, fork, spoon, spoon. Like it just stresses <laughs> me out. Like it just stresses me out. And my wife says, well, why don't you have the kids' help? And I thought, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> this is the whole reason I eventually had kids. <laughs> Slave labor. Like, and she went on to say, you know, your four-year-old actually loves doing it. I'm like, why is he broken? But that's fantastic. <laughs> Don't fix it. So here's the thing. Now I've got my kids doing chores because it's good for them. And I realized that I didn't know everything there was to know when I was a kid. But how about this one? How many of you, when you were a kid, your parents said to you, I hope one day you have a kid who acts just like you. Talk about reversing the curse. That's like the ultimate curse. And then you have a child and they become your mirror and they reflect back to you, your personality. And you look at your spouse, you go, well, I don't know where they learned that. And they go, really? Really? You don't know where they learned that. (laughs) And your children become just like you. But here's the thing, don't you blame somebody else? the other thing about having kids for me, I lose things all the time. My brain is constantly moving. It is a nonstop ball of movement. And I will misplace my keys. I will literally put my keys somewhere where I'll say to myself, I'll hang them there, I'll put them there so I won't forget where they are, only to misplace them an hour later. And you know whose fault it is every time? My kids. Because at one time, one time in all the years, my oldest just turned nine, in nine years, one time my kids took my keys. Every other time it's been my wife's fault. And I still blame the kids. (laughs) But in all seriousness, this has been going on for years, for years, decades, generations, millennia. Did you know that? Each generation looks at their parents and says, I'm not going to do that. And then we raise our kids. And how many of us did exactly what we said we wouldn't do? Now, here's the thing. Even those of us who swung the pendulum and we didn't do what our parents did because we were different. How many of us have created a new set of wounds in our children? Here's the thing, there's no perfect parent. If you wanna blame a parent, as every generation has done, your parents blame their parents, their parents blame their parents, you can go back every generation, but you gotta go all the way back. I mean, all the way back. You gotta get back to the very, very, very first parents there ever was, and that's where we're gonna go on a journey today. So, if you have a Bible or use a digital Bible and you want to turn, turn with us to Genesis chapter 1. That's where we'll spend Genesis 1, 2, and 3 most of our time today. Everything will be on the screens for you. For those of you who don't know how to use it, you can download our app. The outline is in there. Although, good luck if I actually follow it. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He got done with all the stars and the planets, and he made earth, and he he did some very special and unique things on earth. How special and unique? I don't know, we've not seen every planet there is. I know this, it's extremely special and unique because it's our story. I know this, I do not want to, I just want to say real quick, I do not want to have a conversation today about the, um, the, the data and the numbers and the scientific conversation related to Genesis chapter 1. It's so not the point of our conversation today. We're focusing on the theology and the doctrine of what Genesis 1 means for us. But as God created on those days, he ended each day and he said, oh, this is good, oh, this is good, this is good, the star is good, the plants good, the tree is good, the animal's good, and then he gets to day 6, and he makes... Adam and Eve. Now, the way you need to understand Genesis 1 is a 50,000 foot view, kind of zoomed out. It's a a big picture view of the creation story. When we get into Genesis 2, it goes from that 50,000 foot view all the way down to the ground level, then, and it begins to tell us about very specific moments that happened in the garden. That's important for us because as God made Adam and God made Eve, he was creating the first parents that would ever walk the earth. And if you get nothing else today, you need to get the beginning of the end. All the rambling I do in between, you can ignore that. But you got to get the beginning and you got to get the end. Because this is the first thing you need to know. that Our first parents, here was the purpose of them. They were to teach their children who God is, what God's like, and what God wants to do in the world through them. I'll say those again. Who God is, what God's like, and what God wants to do in the world through them them. Now, where do I get that? You're like, that sounds really good, pastor. Did you make this up? No, let me just show it to you in the book of Genesis. Go with me now. Chapter 1, verse 27. I'm reading the New Living Translation. I don't know what translation you have, but here we go. So God created human beings in his own image. Stop there with me for a second. This is a huge, 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 huge piece of what we're going to talk about for the next five weeks. You were made in the image of God. In the image of God, he made you. This is important because even though we live in a fallen world now and every single one of us has been born into a fallen world, the image has been marred, but there's a piece of the image that's still true and real. This is why the book of James, later fast forward one of the last books in the Bible, the book of James tells us that we are to be kind and loving and generous and merciful to other image bearers. It doesn't matter if they're man or woman, young or old, educated, uneducated, whatever their position is, we're to treat them as image bearers of God because he has imprinted on their soul something. Profound and special. In the image of God, He created them, male and female, He created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. The fruitful and multiplied, to make it very, very simple, have children. Have more image bearers, those who will take the image of God and fill this amazing creation that God has made. Notice it says, Then God blessed them. One of the first interactions between God and human beings is a blessing. As we get further into the story, you're going to see the opposite side of that, the side that we talked about last week on Easter. See, with God, there's always either blessing or cursing, and those two things are wrapped up in these ideas. But the original relationship with God before everything got marred was a relationship of blessing. Adam and Eve knew it, and they felt it to the deepest part of their core. So he tells them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and do something with it. Govern." It. Reign over it. Some translations here in the govern and the reign, there's a word that's used there, subdue. You see it, I think, in the King James, New King James, maybe even the English Standard Version. Not an expert in all the translations, but I think the word subdue is there. Why? Well, in the Hebrew, it's this concept that there's something a little bit wild. What's going on here? Well, when God made the earth, The earth had a little bit of chaos, if you will, to it. Chaos might be overstating it, but the whole idea was then he made a garden, and in the garden, God took care of it. So he made sure the trees were mature, ready to produce fruit. He made sure that the water was running through, ready to water all the trees. God literally did all of the work. The story goes, God made Adam from the dirt outside the garden and placed Adam in the garden. So God made Adam out here out of what was wild and put him in here in what was safe and done. Now when you think wild, this is pre-fall. This is pre-flood. So this isn't like uh, African safari. This, I don't, we don't have anything to compare this to really, but there's something going on here and there's a reason as we're going to talk about today. So God tells Adam and he tells Eve, I want you to subdue the earth. There's going to be some work here, but the work's not going to be hard. So you're already living in this garden and it's a beautiful place. It's a perfect place, but the work has been done for you, Adam. So what exactly was the work? Well, gather some fruit for your family. And then what? Chill. Play together. And then subdue the earth. But there's no weeds. There's no thistles. It's not hard labor. It's be creative, Adam. Eve, be a gardener. Take the gift that I've given to you and start to move it outward to the ends of the earth. As you fill up this garden, do this. Imagine the garden place, that place where Adam and Eve had tons of margin for each other. If Adam and Eve were to never have sinned and they were to be able to stay in the garden, imagine their children coming up to them and saying, Dad, can we climb trees together today? And Adam going, sure. I mean, much of the work is done. Yeah, let's just stop for a while and play. And then you and I will go, and we'll gather up dinner, and we'll move the garden out together. It would have been rewarding, fulfilling, full of much joy, but work was always a part of the story. However that looked, I don't fully know, but work was always a part of the story. You're gonna rule and reign over the animals and the fish and the birds and however that looked, you have authority and responsibility. You need to understand something. Before we ever get to God is love or God is holy or God uh, is just or whatever all those other pieces of God we talk about, you have to start. It all begins with this very first piece. God is creator. And as creator, God is the one who's in charge. That means he's Lord is what we call that or Master. So when we say, well, I want to do what I want to do, how I want to do it, you are in fact acting out a rebellion against God who's the one who gave us the responsibility in the first place. So God tells Adam, you go ahead, rain over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. So all the vegetarians were right, at least at that point. And that is what happened. I just lost like 10% of the men. They're like, I'm out. See, I'm done. (laughs) And that is what happened. Then God looked over all he made and saw that it was not just good as it was each day of creation, it was what? it was very good. An evening passed, a morning came marking the sixth day. But it didn't stay very good for long. And I don't just mean sin. I don't know if you know this. So again, Genesis 1, big view, Genesis 2, we zoom down, we get to Genesis 2, and all of a sudden we find the very first time in all of creation it is not good. Adam is alone. So as we kind of peel back the story, in chapter, or chapter one, we have the kind of the completion of it, but chapter two, we zoom in, and we find that God made Adam first, and God made Adam alone. There's no Eve, and God looks, and he says, this is not good. It is not good for man to be alone, and every married man in the room went, amen, preacher it, brother. That is, until you're so busy, you don't have time for your family, and then you think being alone is good, but that's because of what happens later in chapter three. So chapter 2, Adam is given the responsibility by God. I want you to name the animals. male lion has a female lion. Male elephant, female elephant. Male giraffe, female giraffe. And he goes on and on and on. But then he realizes in himself there's, there's a male Adam, but there's no female. And Adam is lonely. And that's good. So God puts Adam in a deep sleep. I think it's good because Adam learned an important lesson that every Adam has to learn. And God puts Adam in a deep sleep. And it says he took part of Adam and he made Eve. And when Adam wakes up from his sleep, he sees his wife. And she is naked and she is beautiful. And I'm not being gross. This is the story. And it says he sang a love song over his bride. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We shall call her woman because she came out of man. And the two, the Bible says, shall become one. And it is so beautiful it is amazing. And the Bible goes out of its way to let us know what an amazing, perfect moment this is. And then. See, in this garden that God made, he told them, eat every plant, eat every fruit, whatever you want, have at it. But there's one you can't have, and it's right there in the middle. And it brings up great theological questions. We don't have time to delve too deep into today, but why did God even put the tree in the middle in the first place? The very simple, maybe even too simple answer is simply this, because love isn't love if it's not a choice. If God forced you to love him, that's not love. If somebody puts a gun to your head or threatens to kill you or gives you no other option except for to choose to do what you've told them they have to do, that's not love. Love is love because the lover chooses to love. So God gave Adam and Eve a choice. And you look at Adam and Eve and you think, it was one thing. I mean, you couldn't resist one thing? See, we do this all the time. And if I were to name your thing, you would know exactly what I'm talking about. See, it's so easy to look at somebody else's fruit and go, well, why are they still struggling with cigarettes or alcohol or drugs or weight or work? Fill in the blank, right? It's so easy to point a finger everywhere else and to not realize yourself in the ways that you are just like Adam and Eve. So what happens next is uh, they're walking in the garden one day and this serpent who is Satan comes along and tempts Eve and gets Eve to eat from the fruit of that tree that God said not to touch. Remember, they only had three jobs. (laughs) Who is God? What's he like? What's he wanna do in the world through them? Well, they don't know everything there is to know about God, but there's some knowledge, there's some understanding. How do we know? Well, we know that God didn't birth a baby in the garden and then raise up the baby named Adam. No, God birthed a man. So we had some pre in put into his mind understanding and knowledge of God. But even beyond that, he knew enough about God to know that God is good and God is powerful. I mean, he built all of this. As you look around, it's pretty amazing. He built all of this, so he must have some power and some might. He also knew that God expected him not to eat from this one tree. And so when the serpent starts to tempt Eve, and Eve gave in, and she looks at Adam, she's like, "Oh, you gotta try this thing. And then Adam took the fruit and he ate. And everything fell apart. Everything fell apart. Now we learn this. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve. It's post-fall. Because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Now think about that for a minute. This is the first scene of death in the scriptures. God kills an animal, takes its skin, covers Adam and Eve. Why do they need covered? Let's hang on to that. Then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing good and evil. So there was something innocent, naive about them prior to this moment, but now they're well aware of good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life, and eat it? Then they will live forever. We'll get back to that. Just hang on to this. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. He's outside the garden now. It's hard work. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the garden, and he placed a flaming sword, the flash, back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. You need to understand what exactly is going on here is a traumatic event. That's what we would call this a traumatic event. They went from a place of absolute safety and security and provision with God to a place of chaos and trauma and fear and anxiety. And since then, we've all been born into that world. The Bible calls it a lack of, an absence of shalom, peace, whole body, spiritual, relational, physical health, peace. It's missing. And we're all looking for it. We're trying to find our way back to the Garden of Eden. But something even deeper than that was lost innocence. So take a look with me. Genesis, let's go back to chapter 2 and then we'll come back to chapter 3. Genesis chapter 2, right after God made Eve out of Adam and he woke up and he sang his love song over his beautiful bride. Genesis chapter 2 verse 25 says this, now the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Wow. I have no new jokes because I'm getting old. Um, Parents, one of the things I swore I would never tell the same joke over and over and over again like my dad did. So anyway, I've said this a million times. But um, have you ever noticed that we put the brightest lights and the biggest mirrors in the places where we're most exposed? My friend's a realtor. He said, Matt, there is more light per square inch in your bathroom than any other room in the house. And yet that's the place where we have all of our clothes off and we can see every pore and pimple and thing that's not right about our bodies. And ladies, for reasons I don't fully understand, although I think this text gives us some insight, you actually go by mirrors that zoom in on your pores (laughs) so you can find out how much makeup you need to cover it with. (laughs) For what sick reason do we do this? But it all goes back to this. See, before the fall, Adam and Eve were naked and had no shame. Maybe something you've never done ever in your life but they did. And then the fog came and everything changed. Take a look, Genesis chapter 3, go back now to verse 7. This is right after they ate the fruit. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. No shame. Shame. What changed? I mean, literally, when Adam wakes up from his sleep and he sees his beautiful bride and he sings a love song over her, she literally has the exact same body. We don't know if there's days or weeks or hours or minutes between this moment and that, but it doesn't matter. Then they were walking in the garden, they were naked and unashamed. There was literally nothing about them to say something's wrong with this picture. There is no Arnold Schwarzenegger in the world for Adam to look at and go, Yeah, I just don't have that. There was no woman in the world for Eve to look at and say, my hair, my lips, my hips, they just don't match up. There was literally no one else in the world but they ate the fruit and all of a sudden when they looked at each other, they felt different and immediately they hid, covering themselves, hiding themselves, trying to get away from each other. And God comes down out of heaven and we're told, and here's the thing I love about God, he always deals with us where we are Not where we should be or need to be necessarily. He deals with us right where we are. And God comes down and says, Adam, where are you? See, God and Adam went often and same with thee. Walk in the garden together, just had this glorious relationship. And God comes down, Adam, where are you? I'm over here. Where's over here? In the bushes. What are you doing in the bushes, Adam? I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? I'm naked. Who told you you were naked? She lost my keys. (laughs) I mean, you go read it. It's it's in the Hebrew, but... And literally, for those of you who are like, what in the world is he talking about? God and Adam have this conversation, and he says, Eve did it. She ate the fruit. She gave it to me. But he goes even further. He doesn't just blame Eve for his sin. He goes even further, and he says, and the woman you gave me. So who's he really blaming? Okay, now think about your life for a minute, okay? Let's just not make this about them, and let's just not make this about your spouse or your friends or your parents. Let's not make it about them, right? Because we know where their faults are. Let's make this about me. This, okay, let's make this about yourself, okay? <laughs> when was the last time you did something you knew you weren't supposed to do? Don't, don't say it out loud. Do you have it in your head, though? Didn't you have a really good justification as to why you should be allowed to do that? Well, if he would have whatever, then I wouldn't have to fill in the blank. You know, if she would just more often, then I wouldn't need to fill in the blank. Well, nobody understands just how hard fill in the blank. And I've got these great rationalizations and justifications for what I do when I do the thing I know I'm not supposed to do. You look a lot like your parents. The thing is, they just look like their parents you look like their parents you look like their parents, and you just keep going back far enough, you find yourself back in a garden with Adam and Eve. One little guy, I think he's about 10 years old, 11 years old, after last service said, man, why did they mess this whole thing up? We could have all been running around naked. And his mom, (laughs) his mom made sure to tell me in the message, she goes, this is a little boy, I can never get to take a bath. He would just think this sounds amazing. It's not what's going on here. What's going on here is a profound a profound, like unexplainable, don't have the right words to put around a profound sense of shame. Profound sense of shame. And we all carry it. It's just that we carry it differently. So what happens is God comes down, he has this conversation, and he pronounces now. Remember when God first interacted with Adam and Eve and they were glory, he blessed them. He had a blessing for them. But now he's pronouncing what the Bible calls curses. Now, because you've chosen to live a life apart from me, here's what life apart from me looks like. That's how you need to understand curses. It's not an, an evil God or a meany God or you know like a, that bossy you know whatever uh, sister whatever you had in your life that person who was cruel to you for some reason or another. God's not doing that. He's not like oh yeah yeah I'm just going to punish you. No no no. You need to understand. God is saying you've chosen a life apart from me. You've chosen to uni- an, a, 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 un- unite yourself with a kingdom that is not my kingdom. And outside of me comes this. Here you go. Here's what he says. So Adam. Your curse is this, man's curse. You're going to have hard work, hard labor, if you will, and pain in production. So he says, literally, the ground is going to produce weeds. Now, here's the thing. Don't think for a minute, just because Adam was given weeds, that you're out of the curse. You're not out of the curse. How do I know? Let's ask every wife in the room if your husband's job is more blessing or stressing. Now, some of you are like, we make a really good living, so it's more blessing. I get it. But you're telling me when he's sitting at the dinner table and his brain is elsewhere, when his kids are asking him to play and he's too worn out to do it, when he comes home late, goes in early, stays up late, all those things because he's worried about producing and performing for somebody, tell me the weeds were really just about weeds. Now, here's a woman's curse. You're also going to have hard work, hard labor. (laughs) It's just going to be in reproduction. It's going to be your pain. Now don't think for a minute, just because we have epidurals and pain meds that women are outside of the curse, they're not. How do I know? Every teacher, youth pastor, children's worker that I know will tell you, you don't mess with mama bear, am I right? I mean dads, when when somebody messes with their kids, depending on what's going on, we can get mad. We can even get enraged if it's bad enough. But dude, if you mess with the kids long before dad ever gets engaged, is not mama bear all over it? And if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. You don't mess because there's some deep and profound connection going on there, but there's pain in it. Instead of the world being a safe place, a place where moms and children have this great relationship, children rebel, and children act out, and children don't listen, and children don't obey. Sound about like your life, moms? This is bigger than just literal physical pain. Oh, that's real. Every woman who's given birth knows that's real. But it's deeper than that. Every mama who's ever buried a child understands how deep and profound this is. But then both of them get a curse together. Here it is, marital strife and death. Marital strife because God looks at Eve and says, you're gonna long for the authority that, that Adam has over you. And what he's saying is, see, before the fall, before the fruit, there was something in the relationship that allowed them to get along together and not fight. She had no problem with him being the leader, but then in the fall moment, and don't miss this, see, Adam carried a special responsibility, a special weight. We're told in Romans 5 that that through one man, all men have sinned. So because of Adam, everybody sinned, but then through Jesus, all sin has been erased. That's the point of Romans 5, but it doesn't even mention Eve. When God wants to birth Jesus into the world, he takes Joseph out of the picture, goes right to Mary. I want to be careful I don't make too much out of this, but there's enough here for us to say, we. I believe Adam sinned both in intentionality when he took the fruit and also by uh, unintentionality when he did nothing to protect Eve. He did nothing to provide leadership over her. And now, on the other side of the fall, the two are fighting. But remember this, they don't have kids yet. So originally, the first marriage, and their children and, their children, and then their children, and then their children, and trace it down to us, there could have actually been a home environment where Adam and Eve never had a power struggle. Could you imagine in your home for just a moment if there was never a power struggle? That would solve a lot of problems, wouldn't it? I mean, if your spouse would just figure it out, they could still have that. And then the other one is death. And actually, the Hebrew says, in dying death. We don't know exactly what that means. Theologians debate this stuff. Was there ever going to be death? I know this, though. The Revelation talks about this. Now when we die, there's a judgment. We must stand before that same creator and give an account for who God is, what God's like, and what he intended to do with us through the world. And did we join him? So let's come back now. The byproduct of this moment was that everybody in this room was born into a traumatic world, a world that was not as God intended for it to be. And the byproduct of that is that we all carry a deep and profound sense of shame. Now, we respond to that shame differently. Some of us respond in pride and in arrogance, and we say to ourselves, I'm a good person. I'm good enough to handle it on my own. And you find the worst of the worst of humanity and you look at your life and you look at their life and you say, see, I'm not a bad dude. I'm not a bad person. But you know what you interestingly don't do? And just receive this for a minute before you get mad at me and whatever. Just receive this. You know what you don't do? You don't find the absolute best person in the world to compare yourself to them. Because nobody knows, like, if I'm good enough. How do I know? Where's that line between good and Good enough. On the other end of that same spectrum, the way that we deal with our shame, some for us, so some of us arrogantly rise up and say we're good enough, some of us go to the other end and we're never good enough. We're worthless. Now that's the driving force of shame anyway. In fact, shame shame is that sense that there is something wrong. Something wrong with us, or not good enough about me. I've got the sense deep down inside there's something wrong with or not good enough about me. I don't know what it is, I don't know where it comes from, but it's deep and it's profound. So how I act as a byproduct of that might be one extreme or another, but that's the driving force behind me. My friend Rick Sudsbury says this. He says, see the wrong I do or even think I do is therefore the evidence that I am no good, unlovable, not enough or unworthy of love. That driving force, that phrase, that thing in my head says it over and over and over again. They've got the wrong quote on the screen. Go back. I didn't put Rick's name on it. He, he gave me the quote, and I changed a little bit, so I just gave him credit. Sorry. <laughs> so the wrong I do or even think I do is, therefore, the evidence that I am no good, unlovable, not enough, or unworthy of love. That's what shame makes me say. So I believe, I believe the scripture here in Genesis teaches us there are three kinds of shame, three kinds of shame. I wanna give these to you and I wanna tell you what we do with them and I wanna just let you know right now, we're not gonna resolve all of this today. You gotta to come back, you gotta keep going online because over the next five weeks, you're gonna keep unpacking it. But the first kind of shame is this. It's guilt, shame, guilt, shame. Guilt, shame, go back to the garden. Guilt, shame says uh, to me, I feel it because I have sinned against God and have done directly what I knew I was not to do. So I feel the gaze of God on my heart and on my life. Does that make sense? Here's how this plays out. Adam and Eve in the garden, they ate of the tree that God told them not to eat, and immediately they go and they hide from God. God says, what are you doing? I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? Because I knew I did what I was not supposed to do. But Adam, I saw you then, I see you now. Nothing's changed in our relationship except for that you rebelled, and that's why I need to get away from you, God. But notice, God came down to pursue Adam and Eve in the same way that God comes down to pursue us. But see, when we have sinned, when we have done what we were not to do, we feel it. We may try to hide it, we may try to run from it, we may try to act like it's not real, but we feel it. I've got this friend, he blew it. There was no other way around it. He had this great rationalization, justification. He needed to take this new job. It was going to provide more money, more opportunity. He was going to be able to climb the ladder. He was going to be able to make a name for himself. Except for friends in his life told him, don't do this. You're a young, married guy. You're going to travel too much. You're going to put yourself in situations where you might fall. You're kind of in a fragile state. Don't do this. And he did it anyway. And sure enough, on one of these business trips while out of town, he did what he ought not to do he cheated on his wife. And by God's grace, he came home and he told her. And by God's grace again, they're still married. But I'll tell you, every time I talk to my friend, the conversations last anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour. And it's like he keeps opening up the picture in his head. He could see his lovely bride. He could see choosing the job. He could see all the situations that led to that night. He could see hearing her cry as he told her. He could see it all. And no matter how many times I talk to him about Jesus, he just can't receive that God could love him. So he keeps punishing himself. I mean, not literally. As far as I know, he's not literally hurting his own body but he literally struggles to believe that God could ever forgive him. He carries this deep and profound sense of not being good enough for the mercy of God. The second kind of shame. The second kind of shame um, I call burden shame. Burden shame comes. It's felt, anyway, when the sins of others fall upon us in a way that makes us feel unworthy, unimportant, or unloved. We feel the gaze of others upon our bodies and actions. Again, Adam and Eve, naked, no shame. Eat fruit, naked and ashamed. What changed? I mean, nothing was different. But something different was different now because when Adam looked at Eve, she suddenly felt very aware of her Faults and failures. Adam's sin that fell upon her in a very unique way. She covered herself. I find it interesting that they grabbed fig leaves only because it's very interesting. We don't know, very interesting that if they grabbed fig leaves because that was the leaf closest to them when they sinned, it could mean that it was a fig fruit that they ate. Interesting if you read your Gospels, just go read what God says about figs. It's very interesting the stories that Jesus tells. There may be an interesting connection there. What if they tried to hide and cover themselves with the leaf of the very fruit they used to sin? Because we do that all the time. But what happens when people sin against us is we feel the weight of their sin. Their sin had an action; it had a consequence, and it happened to us. In my last church, I had this uh, th- this brother and sister, and they were in my ministry as a youth pastor. And her dad was uh, he was a he served he was he was in the army, I believe. And while he was over serving in another country, he decided to leave his American family behind and grab a new family. And I never, I only got to meet him one time at one of their baptisms. It was the only time I ever met him. Their wound was not just that he cheated on mom. Their wound was that when he cheated on mom, he left the family. Had nothing to do with them rarely called on birthdays, hardly ever checked on them. I'll never forget one time the daughter sitting in my office weeping and saying something to the effect of, my dad is supposed to be fighting for my heart and he doesn't even care. Why am I not worth caring about? About two months ago, I turned on my phone on Facebook. I don't know why, I just felt the spirit prompt me to go and look up the brother. He's literally posting on Facebook that he's been thinking about suicide lately. I spent hours and hours and hours meeting with him, trying to help him understand the profound love of God, that God is a father to the fatherless. But he carries this burden throughout his life. He's just not worthy of that love. The third kind of shame I call insecurity shame. This one's a little bit harder to unpack. But see, we're all carrying around this box, right, as I talked about last week. This box that that we just keep putting the junk in and just taking it with us. Insecurity shame looks like this in the garden. Remember, God made the first garden, and it was peaceful. But then God took Adam and Eve, and he moved them out of the garden. And now their life is not settled the garden was done for them. Out there it's not. Out there it's wild. Out there it needs subdued. Out there it needs work. In here, when they were in the garden, they had perfect marital uh, relationship. No strife between them. Out there, there's fighting and there's strife. And so Adam and Eve out there began a family. That sounds like a great idea. In the midst of all this chaos, let's start a family but they had to, that's where this was going anyway. So now, covered in animal skins, in a chaotic environment, they try to bring life into the world. And anybody who has a family knows, families are chaotic, are they not? Especially for those of you who have a two working home. I'm not saying those of you have a one working home it's not chaotic, I'm the only one who works. My wife stays around the house and works twice as hard as she watches our kids. So no matter how you do it, it's hard, it's chaotic. The work is not done, and the work is what? It's never done. It doesn't matter how much you do, there's always more to do. And that's the environment that Adam and Eve bring the first children into the world. Instead of the world being a safe place to go in and explore and come back and find the safety and security of mom and dad, the children are left more on their own, more abandoned, more freedom, more opportunity. And while it sounds adventurous and exciting, it's also extremely terrifying to a little child. And when they come back to dad, dad doesn't have time to sit and just play and hold you and mom to comfort you. There's no room for that because we got to get the next thing done. Sound about right? Insecurity, shame. We feel insecure to explore the world the way that God made it. And yes, it's mine. (laughs) Something was lost in that moment. Innocent. See, it's the only world you've ever known. It's the only world that I've ever known. Oh, yeah, we could point a finger at mom and dad, and there's probably plenty of fingers to point. And they'd have to point it at their parents, and they'd have to point it at their parents, and we'd have to get all the way back to the garden and finally find Adam and Eve. And one tragic decision profoundly impacted our lives. So there's constant insecurity when it comes to dating relationships trying new sports, taking on a new field. There's constant insecurity about what's going to happen if I put myself out there. What's going to happen if I try and fail? There's constant insecurity in the world, is there not? You feel it. But shame says not only do I feel anxious about it, but I'm going to have to go through it alone. So what did God do to resolve all of this? Well, my friend Rick Sudsbury, he says this, for everything God created, Satan imitated in the form of shame to make us feel hopeless and unable to seek forgiveness. That is so profound, you just need to let that sink in before I walk you through it scripturally for a second. God intended to deal with the sin of Adam and Eve in Mercy. Now, you read those verses I read earlier in chapter 3. Does it doesn't sound very merciful? It's because you don't understand what God is really doing in the moment. But God intended to deal with Adam and Eve in profound mercy. And I forgot to say this in the last service. So, as always, you're going to get the clearest version of this. But here we go. I want to show this to you. In Genesis chapter 3, look at verse 15. So, God's come down and he's pronouncing all these curses instead of the blessings, right? Adam, hard work and you know weeds, and Eve, hard labor and pain. and okay Then he says to the serpent, among other things, he says, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. And like most prophecies, you read them and you go, huh? Unless you just do a little bit of thinking, and somebody does a little bit of explaining, and then it's not hard to put the pieces of this together. So there is still today constant hostility. This is not about snakes and women many women I know hate snakes. Yes, just like spiders and bats and other things. That's not what's going on here. There is now a major war being waged for your heart, your soul, between you and your enemy, Satan. And here's the thing. You are going to triumph. How do I know? Because one day, this woman, Eve, she's going to give birth. Not literally, Eve but she's going to give birth to an offspring. So her offspring, then their offspring, their offspring, their offspring, and he's going to come along, and you're going to strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. He's going to strike your head. Well, how did this happen last weekend? Last weekend. In case you don't know, you're watching online, and it's months down the road. Last weekend was Easter. Easter. On Good Friday, it looked like the serpent the enemy had won. He crushed the Savior, the Messiah, the offspring of Eve, told about the very beginning of the Bible. But instead, he rose on Christmas, not Christmas, Easter Sunday. (laughs) Got to get that right. He rose on Easter Sunday, giving us life and crushing the enemy. Now, yeah, you can clap for that. Yay, Christmas. So... But what's powerful is those verses I read earlier in Genesis chapter three, where God kicks them out of the garden and then he puts a mighty cherubim, an angel there to guard the way to the tree of life with the flaming sword going back and forth. You're like, that is so weird, what's going on? We don't fully understand it. I'm not gonna sit here and act like we do. I only know this, that tree of life pops up in Revelation and that tree points to Jesus, how do I know? Because if Adam and Eve had snuck their way back into the garden, there's something about that tree of life that preserves eternal life. If they had eaten of that tree while in their sin, they would have lived forever as sinners. Which was the worst thing that God could allow to happen to Adam and Eve. But instead, he guarded the way to the tree until it was time. So when Jesus died on a tree, rose from the dead, he now opened it up for anybody and said, come, eat of the tree of life. And Jesus says, and I will give you life that is really life. Anybody who comes to my waters thirsty, drink and you'll never be thirsty again. Anybody who comes to me hungry, eat, and you will never be hungry again. Because it was in him that we found that eternal life that Adam and Eve gave up in the garden. Man, Jesus truly reversed the curse. And the way he did it was by giving you himself. He traded his perfection for your sin, he traded his blessing for your curse, he traded your pain and sorrow for his life and joy. Yeah. And he reversed the curse. This is why, probably the best verse in the Bible, right? Maybe you'd never heard it, but you at least saw it on somebody's face at a sporting event. John 3, 16. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Do you see it? God reversed your story. He said, you no longer have to be defined by the things in your box. You can give it all to God. This is why in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down Especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on all of our pain and sin and poor decisions and the effects of what other people have done. No. We do this by fixing our eyes on the cross, on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding, it's what? Shame. So that when he was crucified literally naked, can't really show that in the passion of the Christ. And the most shameful of deaths, you can look at him and say, he carried my shame all the way to the end. You give them what's in your box. I get it. It doesn't undo what you did. It doesn't undo what others did to you. It doesn't undo the fact that you still feel unsafe in the world. No, it doesn't. But what it does is it lays that important first brick down that you can build your life on. Over the next few weeks, I'll, I'll teach you more about what it means to do that. This is going to be a journey And it all begins with faith. See, when Jesus looked at the cross, was he insecure? Oh, yeah. Was he afraid to trust his life into the hands of sinners? You bet. Did he know how it was going to go? Of course he did. And he did it anyway because he loves you. You are worthy of love because your Father in heaven loves you. Have you sinned? Absolutely God didn't intend to deal with your sin in shame. God intended to deal with your sin in forgiveness. Can God heal you? Absolutely. But God intends to heal you through forgiveness. Will you let Him? See, for the unbeliever, this is what it means. It means at some point saying, I'm not the creator, I'm not the master, I'm not the Lord, I'm not the one in charge, and I'm not good enough to save myself. But I am valued, I am important, I am made in God's image, I am lovable because God loves me. So therefore, I'm going to cast down all my efforts to save myself and surrender my life and all the junk of my life, things I've done, others have done to me, and surrender it to the one who loves me. If you want to know more about how to do that, here's the thing. Please don't leave today. And just yesterday, just yesterday, I did a funeral for a tragic car accident that took a dad and a husband's life. Nobody was planning on that being his day. I'm not trying to scare you into faith. I'm not. I'm just trying to say, don't put off for tomorrow what you need to do today. For the service, before you leave today, you can go to my left or right. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to give your life to Jesus. But it begins with a decision in your life, in your heart, saying, God, make me your own. I need you can't do this on my own. I need you. It starts there. Now, for those of you who are believers, what do we do with this? Well, if you're a believer, you've already taken your life to the cross. You've already accepted, received God's mercy over you. But what you need to do now is wash, rinse, repeat. You need to apply the gospel to your heart as I do with my friend a lot and remind him, you are not your worst day. Yes, you blew it, it won't be the last time you blow it, hopefully that's the last time you ever blow it like that, but you are not your last day. The gospel is new for you, it's a new identity, and every day you are new, you're new in Christ. Accept that, receive that, and give it away to others. Meaning you need to offer the same mercy that's been offered to you, the same forgiveness that's been offered to you, and I'm making this really big statement that doesn't address your pain, but I'll deal with it more as we go. But it's a choice. Joy is always a choice that we might make despite the circumstances we face. We choose joy because God chose us. What we're gonna do now is we're gonna go into communion time. This is a perfect opportunity for you to celebrate and commune with your heavenly Father who has not left you, he has not abandoned you, and he loves you. So as we do this, I just want to uh, pray over you and then I'll hand you over to time with him. Father, We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love and your forgiveness. We thank you, God, that when we felt unlovable, when we felt unworthy, when we felt insecure, God, that you chased us, you pursued us, you grabbed us, you held us, and you revealed to us how precious we are to you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus. So God, change us to become more like him. And this we pray in Jesus' name.